letter 16. What you say is, your name is meant to be Low Sir. What I say is, if your name ain't Loser, how comes you spell it L-O-S-E-R? Is this some kind of piss-take? No matter, I will forgive. I will accept what you say. Only, you should know for us English, Low Sir ain't much better than Loser. I like the name Otto. I suppose you'll be telling me it's Oto next. Is it Greek? By the way, I was in a strop before, cause I thought you will never give me permission to use French language again. You can imagine how chuffed I felt when your next letter made it official. I have memorized your snooty way of saying it by repeating it to myself over and over. As to your so-called vow of silence, I have no objection in the event that you may wish to express yourself in language ordinarily frowned on in polite society. Full-on solicitor, ain't you? What you say is, I can use words polite people turn their noses up at. You say, it ain't no skin off your nose. Thank you too muchly for that. But then I got to thinking about noses. How comes they get turned up anyways? I will be the first to grant that foul odors need to be sorted by the council. But what is the matter with foul language? It ain't as if the word bumfluff needs a biohazard label on it. Then I gets to thinking more, and I think to myself, why is it that foul words is always about stuff that's meant to be done in secret? It's either fucking this or buckering that, or wanking off or tossing off, or farting or shitting or pissing or dicking around. Then there's the bits we all do our private things with no one's allowed to say nothing about neither. Dicks and pricks and bollocks and balls and cunts and twats and tits and boobs and arseholes. I mean, for fuck's sake, what's wrong with saying arseholes? It's a sodding word. And let's not forget things like shit smears and wank stains and piss patches, which I suppose you will say all must be frowned upon, like the curse. And by the way, we must never mention the fucking curse, cause the fucking curse ain't something people stand up and chat about neither. Am I right? Seeing as you're my new solicitor, maybe you can tell me why these rules exist. Because if you can't, I will give you a clue. It's like Scarly always said. She called foul words bingo lingo. Each one is a cash prize. It tells the truth. What Scarly said was, when you come up with bingo lingo, you tell the world what it's like to be human. Only that ain't allowed. Nobody wants to know what they're really like. That's fucking sacrilege. I will try to explain somewhat further, cause this is what me and Scarly was having our raging tiff about. We all agree there is the bits we do private things with, only no one ain't supposed to say nothing about them, nor what we do with them. That is rude and offensive. 
None of us don't know why. That is just the way it is. Even you, Oto, even though you are a solicitor, you own something called an arsehole. Do you concur? It ain't like no one can live normal without having at least one arsehole. What me and Scarly was tiffing about was, what has God got to do with it? Scarly goes, it's sacrilege to profane, because even if you don't believe in heaven, most people think they must be God's gift. And if they think that, what they need is for all the words what says they're nothing but shitting, pissing, fucking wankers to be binned and forgotten. To make her point even better, Scarly goes, It don't look too good, us having what every other animal on the planet has. How could the glorious curator knock up humans with arseholes when things like sheep have one? Humans are better than sheep. What was the glorious curator thinking when he knocked up humans with dicks and pricks and bollocks and balls and cunts and twats and tits and boobs? Scarly will drive a point home. She goes, all that stuff is for things that bleat. You will grant, her point was of interest. Do you know what? Scarly was one of those who never sweared in her life. Not once did she foul the pavements. What she learned about that, she learned from me. I don't think I told you yet the lesser miracle I witnessed when we went strolling through a place called Frog's End and suddenly there's a bloke in black. He's standing in the way by a lamppost. He looks ten foot tall with his helmet on. I dares Scarly to be rude to him. So she goes up and says, Good day, Officer Knobhead. Could you kindly direct us to the nearest hostelry? You could see Knobhead's eyes go hard. He knew Scarly just said a foul word to him. We all did. He would have tasered the likes of me straight away. Only he's looking worried now with me and my posh sister standing right next to each other. I don't suppose he didn't have no training when it comes to twins taking the piss. It ain't like we were shitting ourselves neither. Not a bit. There was not even no signs on our faces that this was something fucking hilarious going on. We waited for the knobhead to speak up. Till finally he clears his larynx and says, Yes, madam, you will find a public house not half a mile in that direction. Mind how you go. Fucking miracle. Would you not agree? If that weren't the high and mighty himself joining in the fun and games, I don't know what is. Mind how you go. The thing is, is those words come straight from heaven. They was godly signage out of the mouth of a knobhead. It meant that day nothing could harm us. We wouldn't get arrested. We wouldn't get robbed. We wouldn't even get run over. It was only in future times when we wasn't ready for it. That's when me and Scarly needed to keep an eye out. This is the point, the whole point, and nothing but the point, Oto. Oh and how I wish I would have known it then. Mind how you go. We can all say that again. Because what came in future times is the very devil the bloke in black warned about without even knowing he was speaking the true word of the Lord. When you come and visit, 
I will tell you more about how me and Scarly got crushed by this prophecy waiting to happen. Only, this is the part of my side of the story that can't never be written down. Is that clear enough for you? All I dare write to you in writing is this. The last time I actually seen Scarly alive, it was the morning she died. Not the day before. We was talking about profanities. Scarly was saying how bingo lingo is something most people get scared of. I can hear the way she says it now. It's the fear of saying everything we need to keep hidden. So I says to Scarly, it ain't nothing to do with the Almighty that profanities ain't allowed. It was people what made that shit up. Scarly granted this easy enough. Only she goes, it's always people that make shit up, Marley. After all, it's people that made up your gormless god thing. Can you believe how stunned I was? Brought together by the grace of the good Lord, we was a living miracle. What we had was pure and uncut. Only, maybe it weren't so good for Scarly. Cause, like all package holidays from heaven, this one had its price to pay. The price was, Scarly was one of those who couldn't stop saying how science proves there ain't no kingdom of heaven in the whole wide world. No cherubs with flapping wings, no beardy blokes in it saying, Behold! Scarly couldn't fathom how this is the mysterious doing of the Lord. It's his little jest. He will shove something tasty right in front of you, then whip it away again before you can get tucked in. That's life. It's like it was never there. This is the Almighty showing you how clever he is. By the way, you can ask all the legal questions you like about Uncle Godwin, tosser of the highest order. Have you seen his face? He looks like a boiled potato. I reckon he must be involved. Only I ain't the all-knowing one. I'm just Marley Godwin of this parish. So I got no way of proving what I think is true. The other legal question you asked in your letter is the same one they kept asking at my ordeal by trial. Did my sister never not mention she was leaving me everything in her will? What about the weasel, I shouts? It's not like anyone was asking the old grunt nothing. She weren't even in court. The truth is, I told the truth. I said to the judge, No way, your worshipness. I didn't know nothing like that. Scarly never said she was doing her will. Only then, his fucking worshipness tells me to shut it. The minute I start in about how Weaselbags owed Scarly cash sums, he sits up and goes, That will do. And I says, maybe what it was was my sister cut her out of the will on account of how they had a falling out. Did anyone bother checking that? Members of the jury, the judge goes then. You will fucking ignore those comments. As for you, Miss Godwin, stop talking bollocks, will you? Fucking goons in gowns. Is any of it fair, Oto, I ask? None of them was ready to believe what I said. Not even my poshest fuck barista. 
She was supposed to be in my corner, getting me ready for the next round. Where was she when I need some coaching? Nose in the clouds. So when they asked if I seen Scarly the morning what happened happened, did I fib? Course I fucking fibbed. Not on the holy book though. I done a formation, which, as you know, technically means my fibbing weren't nothing heinous. It was just a normal fib. Did you not play that at school? It's basic tactics. There weren't no point in spelling it out for the moto. I weren't about to tell them I seen Scarly the morning she was killed and how it was a fucking war zone between us indoors. They would have used that truth against me. If I know what you're thinking, the next answer is too fucking right. That morning we hurled as much bingo lingo at each other as we could lay our hands on. You can't go shitting on the good Lord when all he's done is heap blessings upon you, I says to her. The blatant truth is, me and Scarly was hurling abuse at each other on matters of utmost supremacy. And yes, we was very, very shouty. Even so, we made up afterwards, which is how things got done between us. Then Scarly went to her room to drink on her own, while I went to the graves to be with our dead mum and dad. All I did was get wet and come back, O oh Toe. It weren't my fault what happened after that. It was late in June when I received Marley's admission that she'd lied at her trial. As I'm used to degrees of variation in any account of what happens, Marley's letter didn't come as a complete surprise. But it did strike me that as she and Charlotte had been arguing violently before her sister's death, and as Marley had been found at the scene holding the murder weapon, there was enough now for me to close my file without bothering to claim my costs from the legal aid agency. I didn't, though. By the time I had received Marley's admission, my conversations with Ralph and Amelia Godwin were underway. I was learning more about the complexities of Charlotte's life. I'd reached the stage where I was able to ask Ralph if he'd had sex with Charlotte. He was alarmed that I should have mentioned this. He said clumsily that there may have been a degree of intimacy between them. He sought to trivialize what had happened. There was nothing in it, he said. It was only ever physical. When I asked about Marley, he strongly denied having any attraction to her or any physical liaison with her. He said that if Marley had given that impression, she was a liar. Point taken. But in my spare time, I'd been writing my book about the way brains work by observing the way my own brain works. And I'm fairly confident 
that the stimuli of the female form produces responses in most males that are innate. Given that Marley and Charlotte were outwardly the same in every detail, it was logical that Ralph should have been just as stimulated by Marley's appearance as he had been by Charlotte's. I was attempting to put this notion into words when he cut me short. He said there was more to physical attraction than the way a person looks. I asked him to elaborate. He said that attractions between men and women were also governed by the way a person feels. I assumed Ralph meant that a person's psychological disposition could also influence their likes and dislikes. I might have accepted this, but it became clear as we spoke that he was in fact talking about the physical feeling of a person's skin. I wanted to delve further, but he refused to be drawn. Changing the emphasis, he made me promise not to tell Amelia anything about what had happened between him and Charlotte. I assured him I wouldn't. In the meantime, Marley's case was looking more hopeless than ever. The dishonesty issue, raised in her sixteenth letter to me, felt like the last straw. It's long been recognized that witnesses in criminal proceedings lie for mundane and even obvious reasons. Such lies are delicately referred to by lawyers as inconsistent statements. But the fact that Marley had lied during her trial and had admitted it to me needed to be faced. It meant that any appeal I might be able to submit on her behalf would need to expose her dishonesty and explain why she felt it had been necessary to lie in the first place. A similar problem had arisen in that other case I told you about, involving Ava Gillian. I mention her again just to demonstrate that my growing unease with criminal justice wasn't completely subjective or the result of a brain injury. The system was biased towards men and boys. There were only about 4,000 female prisoners. This was pretty much constant. The rest of the population was male and ran to more than 83,000 prisoners. Yet the presumption of the courts was that men and women are the same and that when it came to criminality, they should be treated in the same way. It was January 2018. Ava had been interviewed under caution by the police. She declined the assistance of a solicitor. Before she began, the interviewing officer explained what the statutory caution meant. Do you remember it? He told Ava that if she had a defense to any allegation made about her, that defense might be harmed if she failed to mention during the interview anything she intended to rely on in court. As it turned out, Ava failed to mention something important. She'd only recently told me the whole story. What I already knew was that after spending much of the night in a pub with him, Ava had gone back to Giles Giddings' flat. It was late. She was tired. He offered her his sofa to sleep on. He slept in his own bed. What Ava hadn't mentioned before was that during the early hours he came out of his room. He was naked. He got onto the sofa with Ava and began touching her. When she pushed him to the floor, he went back to his room without a word. 
Apart from that, the story was exactly as Ava had summarized it during her original interview. The next morning, her host had offered her a mug of milky tea. He seemed remote. He brought up the issue of the expense he'd gone to, buying them drinks the night before. Ava snapped that it can't have cost him a penny, because Gidding had told her that he'd used a credit card belonging to his employers. During their exchange, it was Gidding who worked himself into a rage, not Ava. He began to shout. He threatened to hit her. His fists were clenched. She grabbed a knife. She waved it in his face. Then she ran out of the flat with the knife. I asked Ava why she hadn't said anything about the sexual assault before. Her responses were varied. She didn't think it would be important. It was embarrassing. Gidding had had a few too many drinks that night. He'd offered her his sofa. She didn't like to get him into trouble. Whatever the explanation was, the sexual assault was a fact that Ava was going to have to contend with. There was no requirement on her to disclose it. That was entirely down to her. She could maintain the account she'd given to the police, which, as far as I know, had been truthful. The more cautious stance would have been to permit her jury to come to a verdict without the addition of the sexual assault. But I couldn't help wondering if Ava might not be better off disclosing this detail as part of her defense. Do you see why criminal proceedings had begun to irritate me? I could no longer imagine what everyone was trying to achieve in the name of justice. It wasn't about any genuine interpretation of events. Rather, it was about the best legal argument that could be made out of those events. If I was still attracted to the thrill of court advocacy and could sometimes rise to the challenge of a trial, it was only because after my near-death experience I felt so belligerent. I explained to Ava that by adding the sexual assault to her case, she risked formally attracting what was known in legal circles as an adverse inference. I told her that in my experience, juries were usually encouraged to draw these kinds of inferences. Because her original account was a matter of police record, it meant that her late disclosure of the sexual assault was less likely to be believed. The problem was not so much that she made an inconsistent statement in the style of Marley. Ava had made a glaring omission. The likely effect on her jury needed to be considered. A jury might be inclined to think that she'd come up with this new and self-serving detail, not because Gidding had committed a sexual assault, but because he'd decided to become a witness for the Crown. With less than two weeks to go before her trial, we were sitting in my office discussing the options. Ava looked pale and troubled. She stared at her lap. I'd been permitting myself to believe that because she was young and trying to present more positively, her qualities as a witness might tip the balance in her favor. Seeing her now, my confidence in the capacity of any jury not to draw an adverse inference began to ebb. I repeated we could tell the court that she hadn't wanted to raise the sexual assault before because she'd been too embarrassed and didn't want to make a fuss about it. While I pressed on in this way, Ava remained mute. 
It was important to remember, I more or less coached, that she'd taken the knife onto the street because she genuinely believed that Gidding was giving chase. In that respect, her actions were justifiable, I said. That Gidding had sexually assaulted her only hours before, and that he'd threatened her with violence only moments before, should serve to strengthen the assertion that there was a reasonable excuse for keeping the knife as she ran away. I was barely finished saying all of this when she began to cry. I'd been expecting her to. I took a deep breath. I pursed my lips. In the past, I might have reacted differently. I might have become effusive and gallant. I might have expressed my outrage at the inadequacies of a judicial process that systematically withdrew the benefit of the doubt. I might have stood up and gone to her side of my desk in order to sit by her. That day, however, I simply relaxed and let myself feel sad. While Ava took a moment to absorb the impact of the situation she faced, we sat in a silence that I hoped my own silence might influence. When Antony Bride saw what was happening through the glass door that was meant to afford me a degree of privacy in my own room, he sailed in waving a mauve handkerchief he'd taken to tucking into his top jacket pocket every day. He sat in a chair next to Ava and purred. He said something like, What has our Mr. Loser been telling you? He can be so blunt. He's German, you know. I felt entitled to overreact, but I managed to ignore my employer's rudeness. I said to Ava, May I introduce you to a distant offshoot of Homo sapiens? He's called Antony Bride. Please don't be alarmed. He's totally harmless. The ficker shot me a glance intended to demonstrate his disapproval. It served only to increase my contempt. Admittedly, under Marley's influence, I thought of a few choice remarks I might have been able to invoke at that moment. Any one of them would have attracted calls for my immediate dismissal. I held back, though, because it was apparent that my stab at humor was having no visible impact on Ava's distress. Among the changes I've noticed since becoming the victim of an attempted murder, perhaps the most curious one is that I no longer felt a pressing need to be assertive. I'm sorry if I digress unnecessarily, yet again. It's just to say that any hormonal influences which might collectively be described as the disposition to be risky and obnoxious seemed virtually extinguished in me. Unlike some who must not be named other than to refer to them as the fickers of this world, who continued to revel in their capacities to be risky and obnoxious. Bride was taking every opportunity to fawn. He told Ava to ignore me. He said everything would be all right in the end. I could hardly listen to this. I was only vaguely aware of my client blowing her nose into Bride's handkerchief while he dared to pat her shoulder like an uncle in sheep's clothing. I was staring at my mobile now. The phone had lit up. It was on my desktop. From where I was sitting, I couldn't read the message I'd received. I would have preferred to be alone. I had no wish to observe my employer's antics. 
but I couldn't very well ask a client and the principal of the firm to leave. As Bride murmured in the hushed tones of a lover, my mind wandered, thankfully. It turned to Marley's case. Marley was now officially a liar. Any criminal court might have expected a person accused of a crime to be dishonest. Marley's problem was that it could be shown that she had been dishonest. She'd admitted it. Her admission would taint everything she said. Her story was that she hadn't been present when Charlotte was murdered. This might have been supported by the police evidence that she'd been wet when she was arrested. Now that she was confirming she was deceitful, any judge considering her appeal would be more comfortable arranging the facts against her. It was only because of the thinnest thread that I still couldn't close Molly's file. Emilia Godwin had mentioned something that still required looking into. As an afterthought, towards the end of our last conversation, she'd told me that she was approached by a stranger. This was the week Charlotte was murdered. The stranger had been waiting for her outside a swimming pool in Cambridge. She described him as tall and thin. He appeared to be in his late fifties. His right wrist was heavily bandaged. That was significant, of course. He was dressed in a dark suit and well-spoken. He said he needed to speak with Charlotte. It was urgent. He declined to give his name, but he asked if Amelia would be prepared to assist him in arranging a meeting with her cousin. Naturally, Amelia was alarmed on many levels. The fact that the man wouldn't tell her who he was, the fact that he knew she was Charlotte's cousin, and he wouldn't tell her why he needed to speak with Charlotte, or why it was so urgent or why he couldn't contact Charlotte himself. When she said she didn't believe she could help, he nodded curtly and left. Amelia never saw him again. She hadn't spoken to anyone about this. What she'd learned for herself by then was that when it came to anything to do with Charlotte, there was always some intrigue or other brewing in the background. She didn't think any more of it. I leaned forward to pick up my mobile. I read the message I'd received only moments before. It threw me into a state of confusion. I was anxious to get away from my desk and think about it. I looked up. The ficker was cradling my client's hand in his. He was trying to say something in his disastrous French. My bile may have continued to rise at his merciless display of the male psyche, which was as predictable as the movement of the planets, but I couldn't do anything about it. I could only look back, dumbstruck, at the words that had popped onto the screen of my phone. The text was from you. You'd written in German. I read it again. I must have read it ten times, as if I needed to find clues in it. The message was, I'm living in London now, Shouldn't we meet one afternoon? You'd put a smiley face in the text. You'd used a shortening of your name I wasn't familiar with. I hadn't seen you in nearly twenty years.